Good morning. Okay, be honest, how many of you, when we sang, Lord, I lift your name on high, had to fight not to do hand motions? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that was a hand motion song. I don't know why. Um, the, it was great singing some of those songs today. How many of you, uh, like, you don't know any of those songs? Those are before your time. Yeah? Yeah? Um, so the cool thing is, for me, I have always been somebody, whatever reason, I connect with God in music. And that's always been the case for me. My great times of worship are usually standing here with the rest of you singing. Um, I get choked up and tears roll down my eyes and I just am so blessed to know God. And when we sing songs like that, um, that are older songs, they bring me back to other days when I connected with the Lord in the special times of worship and there are just certain songs that, that really bless me. When I was um, younger, uh, we used to have, the church used to have a preschool. So we had kids from like six weeks old all the way up till kindergarten and um, there was a lot of them. And uh, Every week I would go in with my guitar and stand in front of like a hundred preschoolers and, and try to do chapel for them. So um, you have not lived until you've tried to do chapel for preschoolers. It is exciting. But I've, I learned that there are certain songs I could play that they would immediately stop screwing around and turn and focus and do. And, and the most popular song of all time when I was leading for the preschoolers went like this. The Lord told Noah there's going to be a... <laughs> right? And the kids love that song. And I go faster and faster on my guitar. And they would love that. And they'd be clapping along. And they'd have animals coming by twosies, twosies, and, you know, kangaroosies and all that stuff. And um, that was this great song because... Every kid knows the story of Noah, and they've all seen these pictures of the ark and the cute little animals and all of that kind of stuff. It's the great quintessential children's Bible story, right? It's like this children's fairy tale that kids are told whether, they, whether they're uh, religious or not. They're, everybody's heard this story, and we decorate our children's nurseries with pictures like this, and it is just the greatest children's story. It's like a fairy tale, and that's the problem. It's not a children's story. It is as far from a children's story as you could possibly be. I don't believe there's a story in the Bible, and you might be hard-pressed to find a story anywhere that is more gruesome, that is more violent, that is more horrific, that, that has more death and destruction in it than the story of Noah and the ark, because Noah and those few animals that were on the ark and Noah's family are not the only people in the story, right? It's, it's an unbelievably tragic, violent, gruesome, horrific story. But more than that, it's a story of God's grace. It's a story of God's incredible patience. It's a story of God's love for mankind. It's a story of second chances. It's a story that is about hope. And a lot of times, I think we miss it. So we're going to be in that story today. 
Um, we're working our way through the book of Genesis, so if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open to Genesis chapter 6, and we find ourselves today at the beginning of Genesis chapter 6, and before we get to the story you all know, or at least think you know, we're going to cover a story that you probably don't know. Because there, there's this section in Genesis 6 that leads up to the time when the rain begins to fall that is arguably the weirdest passage in all of Scripture. It is so strange. It is not explained to us. Nobody understands it for sure. And yet, I'm preaching through Genesis, so I can't skip it. And so what I really want to do is just start this story around verse 9 when God's talking to Noah, but you wouldn't really understand the context of what happens with Noah unless we get what's in chapter 6 at the beginning. So follow along. Now it came about when man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful and they took wives for themselves whomever they chose. Then the Lord said, My flesh shall not strive with man forever, because he also is flesh. Nevertheless, his days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, and they bore children to them. Those were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart were only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. And the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, from uh, man to animals to creeping things and to birds of the sky, for I am sorry that I've made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord." So we're going to get to the part where Noah finds favor in the eyes of the Lord. But before that, we get these really weird verses that tell us that someone called the sons of God are cohabitating with someone called the daughters of men. And the result of that cohabitation is something called Nephilim, mighty men of old, men of renown. Now, I'm going to just preface this part by telling you, I am about to tell you absolutely everything I know about this passage. And the reason I say that is because I don't want your questions, okay? <laughs> don't email me. Don't come up afterwards and go, just one thing about those Nephilim. I don't know, okay? If I don't tell you right now, I don't know. It's weird, I'm not sure who the sons of God are in this passage. I'm not sure who it's referring to when it speaks of the daughters of men. I am not sure what Nephilim were like or why they were the byproduct of the joining of the sons of God and the daughters of men. Uh, there's a lot of stuff that we don't know that the scripture doesn't tell us. And frankly, and we've talked about this before, one of the bad reputations that Christians have is that things we don't know we talk about them as if we know. We just love to argue about these little nuanced things that probably don't make any difference and if we needed to know, God would have told us. So we have to be really careful not to, not to dig into the white spaces on the page, right? Not to, not to convince ourselves that something God doesn't tell us is something we really needed to know. 
So let's forget about what we don't know about this. Let's talk about what we do know. Um, first of all, every time the Old Testament refers to, uses this Hebrew phrase for sons of God, it is talking about angels. That we know. Okay, when you look up this Hebrew phrase and do a search all throughout, you'll find passages in Job, for example, that talk about the sons of God. In every case, it seems to be talking very clearly about angels. Now, there are four common theories about who these sons of God and daughters of men are. The first one is that the sons of God are the godly line of Seth. You remember last week we saw that uh, you had Cain and Abel's offerings and the murder of, uh, Cain murders his brother and is sent off and Adam and Eve are given a new son to start a new genealogy with and his name is Seth and Seth worships God and there's a line of God worshipers now and a line of those who have turned their way uh, against God. That's the line of Cain. And some argue that the sons of God must be referring to the worshipers of God, the line of Seth, and that the daughters of men would be uh, the line of Cain, the ones who are not worshipers of God. That is possible. But given the fact that the Bible always uses this phrase to refer to angels, another theory is that uh, these are angels, the sons of God are angels, and the daughters of men are women, right? So somehow, there is a mating going on between different orders of created beings, right? Angels and women are cohabitating, and the result is this weird thing called Nephilim, which are not explained. That's another possibility. Given the line of thinking that says they might be angels, the third option is that they are fallen angels or demons, and so that's the reason that you have this offspring that is neither exactly human nor angelic and that these Nephilim were these, these terrifying creatures, these beasts of some sort, these giants that uh, roamed the earth. And then the fourth theory that has, that has some prevalence is that the sons of God here are fallen angels possessing the bodies of men. So you have demon-possessed men uh, sleeping with human women, and the result is some spiritual anomaly, and the offspring is the Nephilim. That's pretty much the four theories on this. Um, I have never found any other theory on this. That's pretty much what people think. And if you want to know which one I think, the answer is I don't know. <laughs> okay? I, I lean heavily toward the sons of God being some sort of angelic being because the rules of hermeneutics tell us that we are to interpret passages in light of the way they are used in other passages or phrases in the way they're used in other passages. So I think they are likely angelic beings. Could they be the followers of the line of Seth? Of course they could. We just don't know. But let's talk now about what we do know. We know something about Nephilim. We know that Nephilim are the offspring of this joining together of whoever these two groups are. And we know that Nephilim are somehow mighty men. They are men of renown, or another way to say that is legendary figures, and um, that they no longer existed, 
right? And at the time that Moses is doing this writing, Moses is writing this after it has happened, and we know that they no longer existed, and you know how we know they no longer existed? Because there's about to be a worldwide flood, and everybody but Noah and his family are going to be killed. There's going to be no more line of anybody except for Noah's line, okay? So um, they are not the ancestors of the Philistines because they were wiped out. The reason I bring that up is because later when Joshua and Caleb and the spies go into the promised land to spy it out, they come out and give a report and they say, there are Nephilim in the land and we are like grasshoppers compared to them. And so that's the only other place we see the description of Nephilim in the scripture. And so these are giant warrior types and um, a lot of people go, oh, they must be the offspring. But as soon as you think about it, you go, no, the, the flood would have wiped them out. So probably in Joshua, when they're using the description of the Nephilim to describe these great mighty warriors, they're simply using the phrase that is from Genesis to describe these men of renown, these great and powerful mighty warriors. So we don't know anything more about it than that. Now, seriously, I've told you everything I know. If you have a question, ricky at gracedewardy.com, okay? Please use that email. He will get back to you. He always gets back to you within 15 minutes. So please email Ricky with any questions you have. Here's what we do know for sure, though. We know that the people of the earth at that time faced a choice between godliness and ungodliness, and we know that they chose ungodliness. Now that we can understand. It had become the overwhelming norm for people to live for their fleshly desires. That was the norm. The culture was defined by perversion. The culture was defined by corruption. The culture was defined by violence. Look at chapter 6, verse 5 again. It says, Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Skip down now to verse 11. Uh, Now the earth was corrupt in the sight of God, and the earth was filled with violence. God looked on the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way upon the earth. Then God said to Noah, the end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence because of them, and behold, I am about to destroy them with the earth. Now those are strong words. To say that, that every thought of every man's heart was only evil continually, that sounds like an exaggeration, doesn't it? It's not. That is what life apart from God looks like. Every man's best efforts, the Bible says, are filthy rags in comparison to God's holiness. And so literally, apart from God, it is impossible for man to do anything that God would call good. That doesn't mean that some of the things that certain people do are better than the things that other people do or better than the choice they could have made, right? And if, if you help a little old lady across the street, that is better than if you take her cane and beat her over the head with it, right? However, it doesn't make it good because every good act that a person does apart from God is stained by selfishness. It's stained by sin. There is nothing that is truly good apart 
from God. A person who is living for himself apart from God never does anything that is actually good. Now, I know that's hard to swallow, and I know that's a challenging um, point to make, but I want you to know, I'm not just yanking this out of Genesis. Go to Romans chapter 1, and you're going to see how this looks. In the, in the New Testament, uh, about the sixth book in is the book of Romans. Go to Romans chapter 1, and, and by the way, uh, if you're interested in this kind of stuff, I encourage you this week at home, get your Bible out, get a quiet time and a cup of coffee, and sit down with Romans chapter 1 and let God explain how all of this happened to us. Because in Romans 1, it tells us what happens when people turn their backs on God, and how when, God, when people turn their backs on God, God in his love and graciousness allows us to do that, and we begin to walk away from God. And as we walk away from God, our life begins to be characterized by ungodliness, and we turn further from God, and God allows us to do that until we have eventually drifted so far. Sorry, this side of the room, you guys are the bad. We've drifted so far now that um, there's nothing about us that could be called pleasing to God. And I'd like to go through this whole chapter, but let's pick it up in verse 28. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, that is, they want to be their own gods instead of letting him be God, God gave them over to a depraved mind. Now, the word depraved literally means tested and found faulty for its intended purpose. And the intended purpose of the mind, above all else, is to know God, right? So their minds become depraved because in their rebellion, God gives them over to a depraved mind to do those things, it says, which are not proper, being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice, their gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful, and although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. That's quite a list. <coughs> And if you look closely, I bet you see yourself on that list. And, and it's talking about what, what man at his best can do without God. And that's how we live. Turn the page to Romans chapter 3 and pick it up with me in verse 9. This is, Jesus, I mean, this is Paul who is quoting primarily from the Old Testament here. And listen to what he says starting in verse 9. What then are we, the Jews, better than they, the Greeks, not at all, for we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. Now listen, as it is written, there is none righteous, not even one, speaking of those people apart from God. There is none who understands, there is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become useless. There is none who does good, there is not even one. Their throat is an open grave, with their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths, and the, and the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now you listen to those verses and you're like, wow, that must be like some terrible gang of misfits. No, it's all people apart from God. So, so when the scripture says our best offerings are really filthy rags, that's what it means, OK? 
okay? So, so what we're seeing in Genesis is we're seeing that as God looks out upon the people of the earth, he sees an entire population where with the exception of Noah and his family, which we're about to get to, every one of them is fully characterized by the fact that they do not have any relationship to God except that of rebellion, okay? That's the situation. So when God floods the earth, it is not merely an act of judgment, and it is certainly not an act of meanness or terrorism. When God floods the earth, it is an act of grace, it is an act of kindness because the, the people have so rejected God that they refuse to turn to him. And the result is the multiplication of the kinds of sin that we see in these lists and people are just treacherously destroying one another and God steps in and begins again as an act of grace. He showed patience. He waited if you just add up the genealogies and how old people were when they begat so-and-so and you just do that math the simple way, you'll find that it has been, according to the genealogies, some 1,600 years since Adam when we get to Noah. And for 1,600 years since the fall, God has patiently made himself available to people who have rejected him again and again and again. And the multiplication of sin upon the earth is overwhelming. And so God ends that reign of sin when he gives man this second chance. Uh, by his grace, he saves Noah. You ever wonder why? Out of all those people, he picks Noah. Was it because Noah, unlike everybody else, uh, was sinless? No, Noah is not sinless because since the fall of man and the curse, everyone has inherited a sin nature. We all sin, so Noah is not sinless. And he didn't do anything to earn his salvation because the scripture tells us what we just read, there is none who does good, no, not one. How could we possibly earn our salvation apart from God? It has to be a gift from God. But Noah was a great place to start with mankind 2.0. And that's exactly what happens here in Genesis. Um, go back to Genesis uh, chapter 6 and look, at me, look with me at verse 9. Genesis 6, 9. These are the records of the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his time. Noah walked with God. He wasn't sinless. He wasn't perfect. He hadn't earned his salvation but he was a man of integrity. That word that is translated blameless there is most often um, translated with integrity. He was a man with integrity. That is, who he was on the inside was reflected with who he was on the outside. Um, he was a man who, who uh, was called righteous. Now again, he wasn't perfect. So we're gonna talk about how, how did he even get that that moniker of being righteous when we know that he had sin in his life, somehow he's a man of integrity. And then if you read the end of the verse, it tells us how. It says, Noah walked with God. 
And we're going to keep running across this over and over in the, in the book of Genesis. And if you keep reading the books of Moses, you'll see it again and again, where he talks about walking with God. Abraham walked with God. David walked with God. Elijah walked with God. Um, the apostles walked with God. We see this over and over and over again. Now, what does it mean to walk with God? It means exactly what it sounds like. They were in communion with one another. They were doing life together. Everyone else had run away from God, and yet Noah was walking hand in hand with God. That doesn't mean that he never sinned. It doesn't mean that he was perfect. It means that his life was characterized first and foremost by his relationship with God. And, and when you skip ahead to Hebrews and it gives us a hall of faith, it talks about Noah and all the others there. And it says what this means when they were considered righteous, it means that they walked with God by faith. It was the relationship with God. Listen, if you don't get anything else today that I say, get this. Everything in life is about your relationship with God. Everything. He created you for a relationship with him. He sent his son to die for you so that you could have a relationship with him. Once you enter into a relationship with him, he sends his Holy Spirit to indwell you so that you can further your relationship with him. Everything is about this journey that we take walking with God. And we've got to stop defining success in the Christian life in terms of like uh, some standard that we reach in our behavior. And we gotta stop defining success in the Christian life in terms of some destination that we finally reach in our spiritual maturity. It's not that. No one ever reaches the destination. No one ever is high enough on the standard to honor God. What it is, is the relationship with God. And if we're walking in relationship with God, then we are walking successfully. We are walking with integrity. We are walking in righteousness. It's the relationship. So we see all these people throughout scripture are heroes. And what are they heroic for? Walking with God. It's not that Abraham was this great guy. We're gonna study Abraham. He was a knucklehead with a capital knuckle. <laughs> Why was he considered the friend of God? Because he walked with God by faith. Moses walked with God by faith and God spoke to him face to face the way, he, the way a man speaks to a man. So Noah was a man of integrity who walked with God. And for about a hundred years, the Bible tells us, he devoted himself to two things, building a big ship and preaching righteousness to, a, to an unrighteous generation. And for Second uh, Peter chapter 2, verse 5 tells us that he was a preacher of righteousness the whole time that he was building the ship. And in a hundred years, nobody repented. Nobody. Such was the condition of the hearts of men worldwide. So let's be careful not to paint God as the villain in this story. God showed incredible restraint. He kept calling people to repentance. And he waited for 120 years. Look at, look at verse 3 
Uh, Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever because he also is flesh. Nevertheless, his days shall be 120 years. Don't misunderstand that. Some people read that and they think it means that the average lifespan of a person is going to be 120 years. It has nothing to do with lifespan. What it's saying is the clock begins now. God says 120 years from now, the first raindrop is going to fall. And man will be wiped out. Man on the earth, 120 more years. And God waits for those 120 years, just like he had waited for the 1,600 years before, patiently preaching through Noah, and nobody repents. And by the way, Jesus compared the last days, the days before he returns for his church, to the days of Noah. You can find this. We won't look it up. You can find it. Matthew 24, verses 37 through 41. Jesus says, you know what? Nobody knows the day when I'm coming back. He goes, even I don't know. It's fixed in the Father's heart, and he's the only one that knows. But here's what he says. But I'll tell you this. The days before I come back will be just like the days of Noah. And and what's going to happen is when I come back, he says... It's going to be instantaneous, and everybody's going to be caught by surprise. And there are going to be people, this is what he's inferring now, there are going to be people who were putting off getting right with God who just ran out of time. Now, that's not a thought that I like to think about. The the idea that God's patience in waiting for us to say yes to his grace will end at some point. But the truth is, I have no idea when Jesus is coming back. I will tell you this, when I look at the world that we live in, it looks very much like the days of Noah. Okay? Beyond that, I don't know. But here is what I can tell you. There will be many people who are caught by surprise. There will be many people who were waiting to repent. They were going to get right with God eventually. And they had this idea that, you know, I'm going to have my fun now, but when I get old, then I'll get right with God. Or, or, you know, when I get diagnosed with something fatal, then I'll get right with God or whatever. And and here's what you and I both know because we've lived in this world long enough. You're not promised tomorrow. Nobody has promised tomorrow. And for every person who has a deathbed conversion that is genuine, I rejoice. But they, the thought that I'm going to have my fun and then I'll come to God is not only foolhardy, but it's impractical. Because life apart from God ain't no fun. Life apart from God has no joy. Life apart from God has no peace. Life apart from God has no hope. That is not living. And there's a lot of people who are thinking, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Listen, if, if we don't know when the clock is going to stop ticking for you or for me, we had better deal with God on his terms now. And, and this idea that we're just going to put it off and wait, and, and this idea that we as Christians never say that to people shows our lack of love for them. So this is not about meanness and judgmentalism and finger pointing. This is about saying, listen, there's a a meteor that's about to fall on your head. You should move. In Noah's time, the world had turned to wickedness as a way of life. And although Noah preached and built his ark for about 100 years, still 
the people were surprised when the rain began to fall. And the result was tragic. And Jesus said it would be like that. You can look this up also on your own. 2 Timothy chapter 3 talks again about the last days. It sounds just like that passage in Romans 1 where it talks about how people will be in the last days. And I'm serious, man. You, you don't need to even read that in, in 2 Peter. What you need to do is turn on the evening news and you will see what Paul is talking about. So Jesus is coming soon. And we don't know the day or the time. Don't you think it's time we started living like now matters? We're going to come back to that later. But for now, let's move on to the story that you've heard so many times before. Genesis chapter 6. By the way, this is the throwback week. I used to preach two hours. So, okay. <laughs> Genesis, Genesis chapter 6. Now, now we won't read verses 9 through 22. But, but uh, let me tell you what happens, Okay. Um, Noah becomes the father of three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And those sons are raised up and they marry women. And uh, Noah is building the ark and preaching all this time. And then uh, God brings the animals to Noah when it gets to be time. And the animals just start coming from every direction and they come to the ark. How did God bring all those animals? I have no idea. But he did. And then it tells us about the ark and it, it tells us uh, in cubits, exactly how big the ark is. And if you don't know what a cubit is, so, you know, you probably don't measure with cubits anymore. Maybe Dave Denstadt still uses cubits. But, but um, a cubit is from the, a man's elbow to the tip of his finger, which is on average about 18 inches. Okay? So if we just figure 18 inches for a cubit, then let me tell you about the size of this ship that he spends 100 years building. First of all, it is 450 feet long. That's one and a half football fields. And it is 75 feet high and 45 feet, uh, 75 feet wide and 45 feet high. It has three decks. And so when engineers do the math on this, what they discover is that a ship with these dimensions having three lower decks in, in addition to the upper deck, that uh, it has 1.5 million cubic feet of storage space, okay? And, and I don't think there's any scientist, atheistic or otherwise who denies this. This is without question much larger than is needed to bring on the amount of animals that would have been brought on. And it's an estimate to know how many those animals are because it's one of every kind and we don't know which kinds there were and weren't still in the earth at that time. But, but there's enough room for all the animals and all of the food they would need to store and for the people for living space. And they are on that ship for over a year. Now, what went on when they were aboard the ark? We don't know. How did eight people take care of all those animals? We don't know. What did it smell like? <laughs> I mean, we can guess, right? Um, did the animals hibernate during that time? Did God put them into some hibernation? We don't know. But somehow... 
before you get all hung up and all these animals and all in the same place and how would they survive and all that kind of stuff, before you freak out about that, let me remind you of Genesis chapter one, verse one. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. A God who makes everything out of nothing, designs everything and is Lord of all, is certainly capable of allowing these animals and humans to live on this ark in some way that he designs for a little over a year, amen? Okay, so if you, if you can deal with Genesis 1-1, you shouldn't have a problem with believing the story of the ark, especially when so much in science meshes with the theory of a worldwide flood. Geology backs it up, um, anthropology backs it up, sociology backs it up, zoology backs it up. You can go online and watch the debates from about all this kind of stuff. The information is out there, but for the purpose of my message today, I'm not going to get into all of that. I just want to remind you that in addition to all of that evidence, in Matthew 24, Jesus says Noah's story is real. So let's pick up the story in chapter 7. Chapter 7, verse 1. Then the Lord said to Noah, Enter the ark, you and your household, for you alone I have seen to be righteous before me in this time. You shall take with you every, of every clean animal by sevens, not twos. Did you know that? Every clean animal by sevens, um, a male and his female, and of the animals that are not clean, two, a male and a female. Also of the birds of the sky by sevens, male and female, to keep offspring alive in the face of the earth. For after seven more days, I will send rain on the earth. Forty days and forty nights, and I will blot out from the face of the land every living thing that I have made. And Noah did according to all that the Lord had commanded him. Now, don't miss verse five. Noah did according to all that the Lord had commanded him. You say, what's the difference between Noah and all these people that died in the flood? Noah did according to everything that the Lord commanded him. See, I think we have somehow in an effort not to offend people or, or scare people off, we in the church are so guilty sometimes of watering down what it means to be a Christian. And it's just like, hey, punch your ticket to heaven. It's free. Come on. It's going to be great. And there'll be a barbecue after church right? And then that's how we do it. But, but here's the truth of the matter. To be a Christian is to be an obedient follower of God. Not perfect, but someone who walks with God. It's to be a disciple of Jesus. Noah did what God commanded him to do, and it wasn't easy. The, the scripture gives us the dates. It was a hundred-year job to build the ark, and, and there's no reports scripturally or anywhere in history of any rain that had ever fallen on the earth before this point. We know that in the garden, the mist used to rise from the ground to water the earth and there was no rain then. We don't know for sure that there had never been rain to this point, but we're never told that there was and it's reasonable to believe there wasn't. So when Noah is told it's going to rain, he doesn't know what rain is. And there were no ships this is the first boat in the history of the world that is ever built. Noah doesn't know what a boat is. He doesn't know what rain is. And he doesn't know how in the world you get all the animals in the world to come and be a part of this, this cruise. And he did according to all that God commanded him anyway. 
And I think of all the times when I know what God says and I choose not to do it because it doesn't make sense to me. And I'm convicted. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He's God and I'm not. And Lucifer got that backwards and he was cast out of heaven for it. And, and Adam and Eve got that backwards and they were cast out of the Garden of Eden. And Cain got it backwards and he was cast into a cursed life of wandering for the rest of his life. And every time you and I get that backwards, we forfeit a little of that abundant life that Jesus came to give us. And we replace ourselves on the throne of our, we replace God with ourselves on the throne of our own lives, even if just temporarily. Now back to our story. The next several verses tell us that God brought the animals to the ark, then Noah and his family enter the ark and close the door just as the first raindrops are beginning to fall, and before long, the ark is floating, and before long, you can't see any more trees, and before long, you can't see any more hills, and before long, you can't see any more mountains, and the whole earth is covered, and again, not a children's story, not to get hung up on this, but take a moment in your mind's eye and just imagine the horror of this time as people are clinging to whatever will float for as long as they possibly can at a sea that is estimated would have up to 200 foot waves. And, and one at a time, they're succumbing. And one at a time, they're dying. Imagine the screams. Imagine the people trying to float up next to the ark and beating on the ark and asking for, just imagine the horror of the whole thing. This is a horrific story because God's judgment and God's grace cannot be separated. And in this great act of grace, there is judgment. Until every breathing being on the earth was drowned and the only remaining people and animals were those that were aboard the ark. But thank God, the story doesn't end there. Go to chapter 8, verse 1. Yeah, that's right. I said chapter 8. Three chapters. Chapter 8, verse 1. But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the cattle that were with him in the ark, and God caused the wind to pass over the earth, and the water subsided. Also the fountains of the deep and the floodgates of the sky were closed, and the rain from the sky was restrained. And the water receded steadily from the earth, and at the end of 150 days, the water decreased. In the seventh month and the seventh day of the month, the ark rested upon the mountains of Ararat. The water decreased steadily until the tenth month. In the tenth month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains became visible. Then it came about at the end of 40 days that Noah opened the window of the ark, which he had made. And he sent out a raven, and it flew here and there until the water was dried up from the earth. Now we get this story. He later sends out a dove, and the dove comes back because there's no place to land. He again sends out a dove later, and the dove comes back with an olive leaf in his beak, showing that there is now trees that are above the water line. And the next time he sends out the dove, the dove does not come back because he finds a place to rest. And the water subsides, and they wait, and they wait, and they wait. And when you add up all the time, it's over a year that as the earth is drying out before they actually walk out of the ark. But look what happens in verse 20. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took of every clean animal and of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. Did you wonder why the clean animals had seven? This is why. 
there was this massive worship service. The first thing that takes place after Noah and his family set foot on semi-dry ground is that they build an altar and worship God. And humanity 2.0 is going to begin with worship. And that now is what characterizes all of the living people on the earth. This was an act of God's grace. And they worship God. Noah and his family celebrate their relationship with God. And it's the first thing he does. Don't don't forget, we just read about um, Cain refusing to bring his first fruits, right? This is the first thing that Noah does. And God makes a promise to never again destroy the earth with a flood, and that brings us back to our own lives today. We live in a time when once again the prevailing drift of mankind is away from God. And once again, people laugh in the face of God without fear or any reverence for him. And and Peter describes it all throughout 2 Peter, the way that it is and, and the way that it will be. And and there's this verse in 2 Peter chapter 3, and, and you can look this up on your own. There's this verse where he says, uh, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promises. He's talking about the second coming. He's talking about the fact that we are in days now. This is 2,000 years ago. He's talking about we are in a time now that is like the days of Noah, and you may be wondering why Jesus is waiting And why he's being so slow about keeping his promise of coming back. And here's what he says. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promises as some count slowness to be, but he is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish. That's our God. He doesn't wish for any to perish. Is the day coming when time will be up? Yes. The clock is ticking. The world is a mess. There's sin and rebellion everywhere. People insist on being their own gods. They insist upon rebelling against the one true God. And he will not hold his judgment forever, but his patience is fueled by love. He doesn't wish for anyone to perish. That's why Jesus was sent in the first place. Remember John 3, 16? For God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son that whoever would believe in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but that the world might be saved through him. John three seventeen. See, God's heart toward us is a heart of grace. And so how do you plan to respond to a God like that? A God who shows that kind of patience, a God who shows that kind of mercy to the likes of us. And and you may say, I'm good, I'm a Christian, I know Jesus, to which I say, hallelujah, amen, so am I. But there's a whole bunch of people who ain't. There's a whole bunch of people who don't know him. And and even in our lives as Christians, some of us, we might just be putting off repentance, putting off making things right with God because we're just enjoying this season of rebellion and one day we'll submit to God. And I just want to offer this to you. There is no time like the present because you are not promised tomorrow. And neither is your friend who doesn't know Jesus. This is not a game. 
Jesus is coming like a thief in the night, and we are living in the last days. When will Jesus become so central in our lives that we can no longer stay quiet about him? We may have gained an hour last night, but the clock is still ticking. And I don't know when Jesus is coming back, but I know this. Today is one day closer than yesterday. The hour is late. The time is now for us to walk with God and for us to reach out to those who don't yet know him and help them see him for who he is. So how will you respond to a God like that? A God of that kind of patience, a God of that kind of grace. I know it's a terrible story. I know it's a story of death and destruction, but don't miss this. It's God's way of giving us a second chance. What a mighty God we serve. Let's stand and pray together. Father, we just want to thank you. We want to thank you that in spite of who we are and how we are, that you are incredibly patient, incredibly gracious, incredibly kind and loving. Father, we thank you that you are holy, you are perfect, and you will not compromise your perfection for anything. But at the same time, you are gracious and merciful and loving. We thank you that we have this moment today. Help us use it in a way that gives you the glory. And help us to live however many more moments you choose to give us with a single-minded focus that Jesus is Lord of all. And Father, may you shine through us so that a world caught in darkness will see who you are and turn to you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. 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 All right, guys, have a great day. The Lord bless you. Go and be a light to somebody. If anybody, if anybody is interested in having the floral arrangements that are up here, it's first come, first serve. So if you would like to decorate your home with those, take them with you.